Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vita dulcedo et spes nostra salve. A te clamamus exules fili eve. A te suspiramus gementes et flentes in ac lacrimarum valle. Ea ergo advocata nostra. Illos tuos misericordes oculos ad nos converte. Et Jesum benedictum fructum ventris tui. Nobis post hoc exilium ostende. O clemens, o pia, O Dulcis Virgo Maria. Our speaker this evening, Dr. John Cudaback, received a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America. He has written numerous books and lectured on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. His book has just been reprinted. He has also presented a number of times at the Catholic Courses Online program, and you can get on there and listen. I believe they can, it does not just a live thing, right? This is a recorded. They can get on there and listen to Dr. Cutterback online through catholiccourses.com. So I encourage you to do that. He's a third order lay Dominican. He has a wonderful family. They live in the Shenandoah Valley. He enjoys hunting, gardening, pig farming, I think most importantly for me, he was an instructor of mine at Christendom College, and I remember the first days that I sat in his classes, and my mind for the first time in my life was cut open and laid out on the table, and he poured wisdom into it. He poured into my mind something that I didn't know had existed, and that is the wonderful revelation of God's creation. I found myself in those days wandering around Christendom's beautiful campus and seeing the world for the first time. For that, I will be indebted forever to Dr. John Cudaback. Please join me in welcoming him back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you, Deacon. Those were great days, Deacon Sabatino. They were great days indeed. I remember them well. It was, it was Jesus, actually, that did that for both of us, Deacon Sabatino. It really was. It's a great pleasure to be here. As I was walking down the hall, there's an interesting sign. I don't know if you noticed it. There, on one of the classrooms, it says, a nut-free classroom. <laughs> And I found myself wondering whether the same thing could be said of this auditorium. Tonight's topic is, is very near and dear to my heart. 
I'm going to jump right in. Fasting and feasting, learning to live the Catholic tradition. I'm going to take as given here this evening, for starters, that our goal is sanctity. Our goal is to be holy, to give ourselves completely and totally in love to our Lord. The church has given us a number of means to be able to do this. This evening, we are going to focus on fasting and feasting in accord with the liturgical calendar as unique means, as exciting means that the church has given us to do this. But let's just, again, start at the beginning for a moment. The fundamental issue, I suggest, is this. Where is our heart? Where is our heart? As our Lord said, as he asked of John and Andrew that first sunny afternoon when they followed him down a path and they did not know him yet, he turned, and of course he already knew them, and he looked at them and very intensely he asked, what do you seek? And I've always thought that is the perennial question that is at the center of our lives. What do we seek? Where is our heart? What do we most of all want? What do we most of all desire? Our Lord says, seek and you shall find. So if we have not yet, and I think it's probably true of all of us, not yet found our Lord as we should, we must not be seeking as we should. Our hearts have not yet been fully converted. So in a sense, it's all about conversion, turning our hearts to our Lord, transforming our desires so that what we want, will, and intend more than anything else is to give ourselves in love to his service. Unto this end, among other things, the church gives us the liturgical calendar. So again, that's what we want to look at. She divides the year into feast days, into fast days, into ferial days. All of this for the sake of your and my conversion. Here's my plan for this presentation. First, I want to consider how our observance of the liturgical calendar and the associated Catholic traditions of fasting and feasting lead to our conversion, lead to our transformed desires. Second, I'll offer a few concrete practical suggestions as to how we might enter into these traditions. I hope you have on hand a handout. If you don't, I will read out loud what I want to refer, but just have that on hand for an occasion I'm going to refer to the handout, and I'll tell you what we're looking at as we go. So we begin with observing the liturgical calendar and how it brings about our conversion. But what I want to begin with is a step back, a couple steps to very basic points. And the first thing I want to start with is a couple things about human nature and the virtue of religion. This is going to be a little bit philosophical, but I think that you'll appreciate this point. If you'd be so kind as to first of all look at the first quotation from the great common doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas. Here he is reflecting upon prayer under religion, and he asked the interesting question, does religion 
have an external act, or is it just internal? Obviously, the heart of religion is something internal, but does it have an external act? And this is what he says. We pay God honor and reverence, not for his sake, because he is of himself full of glory to which no creature can add anything, but for our own sake, because by the very fact that we revere and honor God, our mind is subjected to him, wherein its perfection consists, since the thing is perfected by being subjected to its superior. For instance, the body is perfected by being quickened by the soul, and the air by being enlightened by the sun. Now, the human mind, in order to be united to God, needs to be guided by the sensible, meaning the material world. Since, and he quotes St. Paul, invisible things are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Therefore, in the divine worship, it is necessary to make use of corporeal things, bodily things, that man's mind may be aroused thereby, as by signs, to the spiritual acts by means of which he is united to God. Therefore, the internal acts of religion take precedence of the others and belong to religion essentially, while its external acts are secondary and subordinate to the internal acts. What's the basic point here? Prayer for human beings, given our human nature, is in soul and necessarily also in body. Note here how he has this beautiful insight. Religion and worship is fundamentally a spiritual reality. But given the beautiful way that God has make, made us, it is also a bodily reality. And by God's design, what goes on in the body very much affects the soul. be genuflecting or bowing is not just an expression of reverence, it's something that brings about reverence. By God's wonderful design, when we use the body in certain ways, when we move and act in certain ways, it brings about, maybe not absolutely necessarily, but in the case it does, it tends to bring about a new, a better disposition in the soul. So again, given what human nature is, prayer, worship, religion will be done in body and soul. And the body will have a key role in raising our hearts and our minds to God. Look at what St. Augustine says in quotation number two. Faith, hope, and charity are by themselves a prayer of continual longing. We pray to God with our lips at certain intervals and seasons in order to admonish ourselves by means of such like signs to take note of the amount of our progress in that desire and to arouse ourselves more eagerly to an increase thereof. Look at this great point that St. Augustine is making. We pray at certain intervals and seasons and we pray out loud. So note, this is a clear reference to the liturgical calendar and to our being very bodily beings. We pray at certain times and certain ways and certain seasons out loud with our bodies so as to increase our desire for God. Again, St. Augustine's all about the conversion of the heart. How can we more and more turn our hearts towards God? And here St. Augustine makes reference to bodily prayer, 
liturgical prayer, prayer according to the liturgical seasons. St. Thomas makes a commentary on that particular quotation in the next quotation, number three. And so it is fitting that prayer should last long enough to arouse the fervor of the interior desire. So what we have here is St. Thomas and St. Augustine pointing to our prayer should be done in such a way as to change our hearts, as to increase our desire, our intention for God. St. Thomas then would point out, this is an interesting point I think at times we lose sight of, we should see our prayer as fundamentally about changing our hearts, not as fundamentally about changing God's heart. God's heart does not change. It need not change. Our heart should change. And so we pray in such a way as to change ourselves. Again, most of all, what our desires are. In our fourth quotation, I have an excerpt from a favorite little book of mine from the 13th century. It's not clear who the author or authors are, but it is a description of how St. Dominic prayed. And it captures beautifully this point, and I just want to quickly read you. This is the introduction to this beautiful little book that I highly recommend. In learned books, the glorious and venerable doctor, Brother Thomas Aquinas, and Albert of the Order of Preachers, as well as William in his treatise on the virtues, have considered admirably in a holy and devout and beautiful manner that form of prayer in which the soul makes use of the members of the body to raise itself more devoutly to God. In this way, the soul, in moving the body, is moved by it. Isn't that a great line? The soul, by moving the body, as it were, to, to take certain positions, to move in certain ways, is thereby moved by the body, aroused to greater things. At times, it, the soul, becomes wrapped in ecstasy, as was St. Paul, or is caught up in a rapture of the spirit like the prophet David. St. Dominic often prayed in this way, and it's fitting that we say something of his method. Certainly, many saints of both the Old and New Testament are known to have prayed like this at times. Such a method serves to enkindle devotion by the alternate action of soul upon body and body upon soul. And this great little book it has many pictures of the different ways that St. Dominic would use his body in order to arouse devotion in his soul, how he would lay prostrate. My favorite one is how he would pray like this. He would stand and it says he would point his hands as an arrow towards God and hold open his hands as though he was waiting to receive something precious. Isn't he I'm just standing like that? How, how could God not give you something? <laughs> if you stand like that, and you mean it. In any case, that's what St. Dominic did. Again, certain actions or motions of the body move the soul towards God and turn our affection towards him. So we can increase our devotion, transform our hearts by acting in certain ways in our body. This is the basis, ladies and gentlemen. That was the foundation for understanding how fasting and feasting and other such bodily practices are an integral part of living our faith. God wants us 
to have our bodies be an integral part of our faith. And particularly, that's why we can see that fasting and feasting, very bodily realities, are going to be key in bringing about our conversion. I want to say something quickly here about liturgical prayer because we would be remiss did we not. I have several quotations on the first page here, and I'm not going to read all of them. Quotations 5, 6, 7, and 8 are beautiful quotations from Vatican II and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I think it's always important that we remember that liturgical prayer, most of all the Mass, also the divine office, liturgical prayer, the official prayer of the church, has an absolute primacy among all prayers. For instance, quotation number five, the mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. Number six, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the liturgy is the summit towards which the activity of the church is directed, but also the font from which all her power flows. Number eight, in liturgy, full public worship is performed by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, by the head and its members. From this, it follows that every liturgical celebration, because it is an action of Christ, the priest, and of his body, which is the church, is a sacred action surpassing all others. No other action of the church can equal its efficacy by the same title and to the same degree. And here's the amazing thing. Liturgical prayer is always, always bodily, too. Again, the church in her great, great wisdom sees the centrality of bodily things expressed in our liturgical prayer. So now, let us turn to the liturgical calendar and our observance of it. The liturgical calendar is a way of sanctifying the very material reality that is time. The church gives us this amazingly beautiful and I think underutilized means to sanctify time. We are always in time. What if we have a way that all of time can be made holy? And that's what we have. Time, of course, is divided into years, seasons, weeks, days, hours. Isn't it remarkable how the liturgical calendar has every one of those? It has a year. It has seasons. It has weeks. It has days. And it has hours. Consider how when we enter into the spirit of that calendar, we are able to sanctify every aspect of that time, again, so that our hearts in each part of that time, will be turned upwards. How does it do this? We associate specific times. Because of the liturgical calendar, we will associate specific times with the most important things that have ever happened. The very actions of our salvation the things that, in a sense, our life is most of all about, these things become associated with the times that we live in now. Though in some sense they are past, those things, again, I say, which our life now should be most of all about, 
become brought into the present. I, I, I love this way of putting it. The liturgical calendar makes presence to us now. In a sense, the only things that matter. The most obvious examples of this are how the events of our Lord's life itself are brought into the present. Think of this. When we are celebrating the ascension, we truly say, today, our Lord ascended into heaven. Today, the Word became flesh and dwelt with his people. Today, at one point, in your and my year, the Holy Spirit descends upon the church. Today, Mary is crowned queen of heaven and earth. All these things that our life now should be about are brought into the now by our church saying, today is the assumption. Today is the assumption day. Today is Christmas. And so on. Or on the days that are not the actual feast days, we might be able to say, we should be able to say, today I am fasting in preparation for the birth of Jesus. Or today I am fasting in preparation for Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus rising from the dead. Think how when we willingly enter into those things being made present, think how that is a means of inflaming our desires, of changing our hearts, of converting us. And perhaps in a lesser way, but in a similarly very beautiful way, consider a day like today. Today's the feast of St. Rose of Lima. The example of a saint is brought right down into the presence. Today is St. Rose of Lima Day. Today, in recalling St. Rose of Lima, we recall her victory over sin, her transformation in Christ. In a sense, her victory is our victory, brought before us in all its color. If we follow along and realize today the church says, please, look up St. Rose. We should know who she is. And consider here today, on August 23rd, what St. Rose has done. And we will be inflamed to be like her. Let's take an even closer look then at how the church then has us observe it. There we see, all right, the church has set up the calendar so that the year is broken up so that we associate different days with different key things in salvation history or different saints who can be a key example for us. But then more specifically, how do we observe then those times? And that's where we enter into fasting and feasting. Fasting. 
Fasting is the practice of either abstaining from food altogether or of eating less than we normally would for some length of time. It sounds so simple. It is so amazingly powerful. Take a look, if you would, on your handout on the top of the back side. And I have a quotation here from St. Thomas that I think that you're going to love. This is St. Thomas on the fruits of fasting and why one might want to fast. Fasting, he says, is practiced for a threefold purpose. First, in order to bridle the lusts of the flesh, wherefore the apostle, St. Paul, says, in fasting is chastity. Since fasting is the guardian of chastity. We'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, we have recourse to fasting in order that the mind may arise more freely to the contemplation of heavenly things. Hence, it is related in Daniel of Daniel that he received a revelation from God after having fasted for three weeks. Thirdly, says St. Thomas, in order to satisfy for sins, in other words, to make reparation for sins. Wherefore, it's written in Joel, be converted to me with all your heart in fasting and in weeping and in mourning. Isn't this striking? Talk about a piece of wisdom that we need today. Here's St. Thomas Aquinas, echoing the fathers of the church, says a very simple thing. If you want to be chaste, fast. Full stop. Fasting is the key practical means that God has given us to be, to use that great phraser of St. Thomas, the guardian of our chastity. Ladies and gentlemen, I suggest that it is no accident in the culture in which we live that it is simultaneously a culture of sexual license and of gluttony. They go together. Isn't it interesting the church in her wisdom and we're going to see that more as we go, has always said, fast, fast, fast. Because for some reason, and, and, and it's not immediately evident why it is. If you press me on that, why? Why is it that these great masters say, if you deny your desire for food, that that will lead to your being able to put the proper order likewise into sexual desires. It's not immediately evident, but it certainly is what experience has shown. Going on to the second point, that fasting raises the minds to spiritual things. This, frankly, is even more exciting, I think, than the first point, if that's possible. Very good question. I'll give you a suggestion as to why I think that might be. But as far as I'm concerned, when the great masters tell us, it, it, we don't need to know why. We have literally thousands, not just the 2,000 years, the church, because it was a tradition even before that among the Jews of fasting. Not only is fasting the guardian of chastity, 
It's a way of raising the mind to spiritual things. What he means by that is if we fast, we will want spiritual goods more. Why else would religious, meaning monks, nuns, make a point again and again and again of fasting regularly and even looking like they're enjoying it because they have found that simple truth there. Fasting from food works something within us where we want spiritual goods more because we fasted. If you ask me why, here is my best shot at why. For the sake of feeling more deeply that spiritual hunger that's in me but needs to be brought out, for the sake of feeling that hunger more deeply, I'm willing to suffer for a time the bodily hunger of food. And somehow, by being willing to suffer that bodily hunger and just let it go, it brings to the fore that deeper hunger, that bodily hunger, is a faint sign of. But if we always live in satiety and never let ourselves feel the bodily hunger, spiritual hunger lies, lies hidden. It lies hidden. It doesn't have the opportunity to come out in the same way. At least that's what those who would know, it seems to me, say. And then the final point of what fasting does is it makes reparation for sins. I mean, what an amazing trio of something that's just right there to be had. We can just start doing it right now. It's an easy on a bodily thing. And look at those amazing fruits it has. And you're ready for something really neat? St. Thomas, as he proceeds to talk about fasting, he says, you know what? This is something everybody should know by natural reason. He says it's actually of the natural law that we should fast. He says the church will tell you specifically when you have to, but everybody should know that you've got to do it sometime anyway. Isn't that amazing? Somehow he's saying, in any case, if we're not clouded by sin, we will be able to see, you know what? If I'm going to preserve my chastity, if I'm going to raise my mind to the higher things, if I'm somehow going to make up for my own faults and maybe even the faults of others, I should be fasting. I'm going to read you quotation number 11 from St. Augustine. And bear this in mind when you read this. Here's a man who knows the difference between chastity and unchastity and what you have to do to go from one to the other and listen to what this man says. Fasting cleanses the soul, raises the mind, subjects one's flesh to the spirit, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of concupiscence, quenches the fire of lust, kindles the true light of chastity. 
That from a man who spent years overcoming his lack of chastity and then finally had well kindled in him the true light of chastity. Isn't that neat? So fasting is this God-given gift we have of bridling, as it were, all of our lower desires, not just the desire for food, but somehow all of them, and simultaneously cultivating the higher ones. Literally, simultaneously cultivating the higher ones. Talk about a means of conversion, and then look at the great wisdom of the church saying, what better way is there to prepare for feasting than fasting? First, we'll talk about just a moment what feasting is. It's rejoicing in the higher things. What possible better way would there be, more necessary way, to be able to rejoice in the higher things than to have taken this unique means of, first of all, again, brightening the lower desires and making us want the higher things more, we turn with a passion to feast then, having been enkindled by our fasting. Let's take a look at feasting. What's a feast? We already considered how a feast day makes some great event present to us. Let's go a little further into that. In feasting, we seek literally to enter into the joy of some great event or some great reality. Think of the phrase, feast your eyes on this. To feast, again, is to enter into the joy of something. It can take many forms. I think pretty much always it involves the body. But to see a couple further key points about festivity, I want to turn to one of my great mentors, the Thomist philosopher of the 20th century, Joseph Pieper. He has a great book called In Tune with the World, A Theory of Festivity. I'm going to give you just a couple of gems from this about festivity. I think will help us be able to do this feasting thing a little better and to understand it a little better. He notes that we can really only celebrate things that have a present meaning and importance. We really only have festivity regarding something that has a present meaning and importance. It's a simple but a great point. If, if we were no longer a country that July 4th of 1776 had a certain meaning for, then there would be no reason to celebrate it anymore. Right? If someday the United States is not, then July 4th won't be celebrated by anything because it would have no present meaning. You only celebrate or have a festivity if something has a present meaning. Isn't that an interesting point as regards what happens to Christmas when there's not really something that people are realizing is a joy they need to enter into? It becomes banal. Real festivity is when there's something greatly important and joyful that we enter into presently or in the present. He says the true festivity always involves a joy, a rejoicing in some great good that's experienced. In some way, it's experienced and received right now. And here's another really neat point. 
precisely by our celebrating, precisely by our entering into a feast, we actually come to more appreciate the very thing that is there to have joy in. In other words, by celebrating, for instance, Christmas well, our heart is more fully given over to that joy. So it's not just, oh, you know what, there's something worth rejoicing in, so let's rejoice. No, by actually having the festivity, we more fully come to know, to taste, to experience the thing in question by literally it becoming more present to it. Here's a really neat then point. Do you realize what that means? Pieper points this out. He says, that's the basis for the beautiful old tradition of wishing people a happy or a blessed feast day. When you say to someone, have a Merry Christmas, you are wishing them something very specific. May you rejoice in the birth of Christ in such a way that it comes to mean much more to you at the end of the day than it did at the beginning of it. May you have a blessed Easter in the very celebrating of it. May something happen to you that wouldn't have happened to you had you not celebrated it. So again, the feasting is literally the entering into the joy in such a way that that joy becomes more, more present and more ours. Have a blessed Feast of St. Rose today. And I mean it. Now, the most fundamental way of celebrating a feast is liturgically. And here we'll start to move back to where we started and we'll move towards a conclusion and a few practical suggestions. In our liturgical prayer, which again, always has a bodily aspect given human nature. We enter into a feast by praising God and asking him to open our minds and our hearts to the joy that is celebrated. I mean, doesn't this make sense? Isn't it, isn't it beautiful how the church says the most important feast, really any real liturgical feast, something that's worth celebrating, what's the main way of entering into it? The liturgy of the Mass. We go to the liturgy of the Mass so that in that prayer, that full soul-body prayer, there's ultimately the prayer of Christ himself, that is our deepest way of entering in to the joy. And of course, what's, by the way, one of the main ways you enter into a joy that's been given to you? You give thanks for it. So we celebrate whatever it is in question by the Eucharist, where we thank God for the gift, whatever it is that has been given. Think likewise how in the Mass, the most important thing to be celebrated in is literally made present. And we rejoice 
and we rest in it, nay, in him, in that mass. So we've come full circle. We find in liturgical prayer the true heart of any feast or fast, for that matter. The greatest means of changing our hearts, if we enter into it with the right spirit, we will come out of it with a new heart, one different than we went into it. But note, in the great tradition of the church, not only do we celebrate feasts liturgically, we also celebrate them by a whole host of cultural practices. And just a quick note on these beautiful cultural practices. What a treasure we lose when we lose these amazing cultural expressions, especially those expressions of joy, of rejoicing, as well as those cultural expressions of fasting, but the ones that come most of all to mind. Think of the foods, the habits of dining. Think of the procession. Think of the song. Think of the dance that are all ways that with our bodies we say yes to the things that are most important. We enter into them and rejoice in them through these cultural expressions. I just one example. I'm so blessed I've married a a woman who was a Ukrainian-American, and she and her family preserved many of the great Eastern European traditions, and I'm about to mispronounce one of them as I mispronounced all of them. But there's something that's called something to the effect of the prosphora that is done at Easter and at Christmas, where before that great meal of celebration, the head of the household takes a plate, and for everybody in the room, plus one, because you never know when there might be an unexpected guest. You put a piece of bread, and then you put a little bit of honey, because life is sweet. And then you go around to everybody, and you greet them with, either Christ is born, or Christ is risen, and you give thanks for what's happened in the past year, and you pray for them in the upcoming year, and you share that sweet bread with them, and then the head of the household goes on to the next, and the next, and the next. I mean, what a way to mark time. And already now, my years pass from one prosvara, even if I can't pronounce it, to the next, and I thank God for what happened since the last one. And you know, and every now and then, someone's not there who was at the last one. But that's okay, because this is a celebration of something that transcends even that. And you pray together as you look towards the next prosphora. Because someday there's going to be a prosphora where everyone's there again. And we're eating really sweet bread, won't we be? All right, a couple of quick practicals for you. A couple of suggestions. We need to raise our awareness of the liturgical calendar. We can do this in a number of ways. We just need to start, I mean, put up that, you know, a lot of parishes do you that favor of giving you that one that, that, that you know, is paid for by the local funeral home, and it's, and it's got those pictures on it, and you put it up there, and it has all the different feast days in there. So we get up in the morning, and there it is. We need to start being aware of this, making a conscious effort to say, you know, it's not December right now as much as it is Advent, say, in December. And in March, it's not so much March as it is Lent. 
Now, May is not so much May as it is the Easter season and the month of the Blessed Mother. I mean, it's just more real. So we, we just need to raise our consciousness of these things. Here's another suggestion. Fridays and Sundays. Fridays and Sundays. In her great wisdom, the church gives us, Jesus gives us, because he's the one that set that up. He knew what he was doing, honestly, when he died on a Friday. And he knew that to the end of time there'd always be Fridays, and he wants Fridays to be Fridays. Friday, by canon law, is a day of universal penance in the church. Universal penance. And indeed, in canon law, it actually is a day universally of abstinence from meat, it says, unless the local, the national uh, conference changes that. And the, and the United States Conference has, has given some further specifications on that. But the key is this. In the church's mind, one day every week is a day to fast. Every week. There it is. Never to be missed. And then one day, well, every now and then, it actually can also cute sometimes. If a solemnity falls on a Friday, then actually it's not a day of fast. And this, this neat kind of primacy of feasting over fasting. But nonetheless, always, otherwise, Friday is a day of fast. And then Sunday, every week, Sunday, the primordial feast day. Sunday, of course, is Sunday because it is the primordial feast of our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And we are to redeem Rejoice in that every Sunday. If you'd be so kind as to look at quotation number 16 from Blessed John Paul II's Apostolic Letter of the Lord's Day. Sharing in the Eucharist is the heart of Sunday. But the duty to keep Sunday holy cannot be reduced to this. In fact, the Lord's Day is lived well if it is marked from beginning to end by grateful and active remembrance of God's saving work. It's not a great way of putting it. I mean, talk about a, a commission to us. What would our life be like if we really lived Sundays? Marked from beginning to end by grateful and active remembrance of God's saving work. May I make a small suggestion, something we might all want to work on together? What if as families, in whatever form you know, the family takes, you know, whether we're older or younger, said, Sunday will always, always be set apart. This is a day where we will be together and we will rejoice. We're going to set this time aside. You know what St. Thomas says about Sunday? Fasten your seatbelt. On Sundays, once a week, we start to do what we are called to do forever in heaven. Namely, rest together in God. Talk about feasting. So there's Sunday, which of course follows upon a Friday, which got us ready for it just as it got him in some sense, ready for it. To close, praying the Liturgy of the Hours, the way the Liturgy of the Hours is so beautifully designed to call us into remembrance 
of these wonderful feasts and of these fast days. By the way, you have noticed the liturgy of the hours on Friday is solemn, and it refers to those things, bringing us to mind, reminding us of the way we are spending that Friday. Think of the other ways we can live the liturgical calendar in the cultural ways. Small things, even if we can't restore all those cultural practices, small ways that we can make, make these things more present to us in our homes, hanging up little pictures, whatever, little things that we practice that we start to do to remind ourselves of the day, what it is. Think, by the way, of parish festivities. The great tradition of a parish getting together once a year and saying, this is our patronal feast. This is the day we rejoice in the fact that by God's providence, this saint, when the Blessed Mother under this title, is our patron. We rejoice in that and we come together to celebrate together. Ladies and gentlemen, in this life, we fast and we feast with our body and our soul in order that one day, one day, we might join that great feast where, as the great Byzantine prayer says, the sound of those celebrating never ceases. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Cutterback. I cannot tell you how excited I am about the presentation you just heard. As Dr. Cutterback was speaking, I was getting excited for Pascha, for Easter, because, you know, what an experience we have as Catholics. And if any time during his talk you thought, I've never experienced that before, it's a great tragedy, but it's also a great opportunity. I encourage you that you take the church's liturgical calendar seriously as the most important thing in your life. As you walk with our Lord through his life, and ultimately end up where he ended up, walking side by side with him in paradise. It's only through fasting and feasting that that's going to take place in our life. All right, we're going to take a short break and come back for our Q&A for those that can stay around. <laughs> okay, Father Joseph told me that I'm supposed to be a lot nicer to you when I'm calling you back to Q&A, so I'm trying the let's settle down now approach. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay, okay. So our usual question and answer, I'll be nice. I'm trying the nice Deacon Sabatino approach. Questions, yes. I have a quick question. Uh, you mentioned feast, fast, and ferial days, and that's sort of, I can't remember. What ferial days, would you please? Okay. Um, it, it, it is a little bit confusing because the word F-E-R-I-A-L is from a Latin word that means feasts, but through a strange turn of events, it's used to name days that are neither a feast nor a fast day. So for it, it's kind of ordinary days would be a feria or ferial days. So that's why there's feast days, there's fast days, there's ferial days. Dr. Cutterback, you made the connection between fasting and chastity. Could you explain a little bit more in depth St. Thomas's understanding of chastity and how it's foundational? to the spiritual life, and then how fasting and feasting, consequently? I appreciate that question very much. Chastity names a virtue. It doesn't name a state. It means that the order of reason 
has been placed into our sexual desire. So chastity is the virtue of acting according to reason and even desiring according to reason, rightly, in the area of sexuality. So uh, Joseph Pieper, again, by the way, is a great one to talk about the beauty of, of chastity. I'll just give you two quick things. First of all, chastity oversees the beautiful area of family life because this family can never flourish unless, especially parents, are chaste. A father can never be the father he must be if he's not chaste. So chastity oversees the beautiful realm of procreation and family life. Similarly, further, chastity has always been seen as a key virtue that preserves our moral vision because a lack of chastity causes blindness. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see our tradition has always seen very clearly that in a unique way, not only does a lack of chastity destroy family life, it also destroys our moral vision. So there's how foundational having chastity is to the good life. Fasting, of course, to the extent then that it goes beyond just giving us the virtue in the area of our desires for food, that it likewise allows us to place order into our sexual desires you see there, it, it, it immediately broadens out its influence into the realm of vastly protecting and improving family life and preserving our vision of what is truly good and not. Thank you for that question. I just want to say thank you very much um, very because well. I think you just saved my soul. And this is in regard to the first statement I think you made about, and you d did remove the cloud of unknowing in me for as the reason why God, as my thinking of why God is so selfish that he wanted to be loved, you know, Jesus giving us the two great commandments. And I always had a, a question in my mind, that I ne in my heart, that I never told anybody or ever shared. He said, why is it that God wanted to be loved so much? Why is he so selfish that, you know, he wants everything to him? And uh, your talk, your statement today just made me realize that it's, you know, it's, it's for your own good. And, and, and also what Jesus, you know, the two great commandments, it just showed how much he loved us by giving us those commandments and because it's really for our own. And so I'm deeply, deeply appreciative of clearing that up. I, I would uh, simply say to you, I, I, I'm deeply humbled, honored, and, and there are a few things that you could have said that would have made me more grateful um, and given me greater joy if God shared that grace with you here this evening to see that his whole purpose in creating us is to have shared his joy with us, not to increase his but that we might be happy with him. So thank you. Do you think it's still possible to reap all the benefits of fasting that Aquinas outlined with the traditions of fasting being so stripped down from what they once were in, uh, as dictated by tradition? That's a, that's a great question. So everyone heard the question? Will we really reap all the benefits of fasting that St. Thomas Aquinas talks about when, I'm rewording the question a little bit, when for St. Thomas, fasting was pretty serious 
And, and now our version of fasting tends to be a little namby-pamby in comparison. Am I putting words in your mouth? Um, so it seems to me that you point to something very important there, and I suppose that St. Thomas himself would say, to the extent that we fast better and more fully, we will reap those fruits more fully. Though I would, I would simply add this. At the same time, I dare say, the love with which the fasting is done is also key. In fact, it is simply central so that it, where even fasting that might not be quite as full is done with a very good intention, that that will make a very big difference. So I would just simply say this by way of, I appreciate kind of your asking and your point of maybe given what St. Thomas is saying, we should be a little more gung-ho, perhaps more serious than we have been. We could do better fasting than we have. And I'm going to take that to heart. That's a good reminder. Let's bear in mind that also the, the good intention and love with which it's done, likewise, I think, is the key in bringing about those good fruits. Thank you. Dr. Cutterback, I just received a written question regarding our Lord's teaching to his apostles that the demons are only driven out through, and one of the key elements is fasting and prayer. Why is it that fasting is so powerful in driving out demons? Right off the bat, I'm going to say, I don't know. I can't reliably answer that question, but if you'll indulge, I'll just make a suggestion. If nothing else, let me wonder along with the questioner, isn't it amazing that our Lord is pointing out to us he sees fasting as that central? I would think that might have something to do with the third point of St. Thomas of fasting is a great satisfaction for sins. And so it is a very pleasing offering to God as a counterbalance to sin. And it seems to me it would be reasonable theology that to the extent that sin opens us up to the influence of the evil powers in making that satisfaction, we are giving a counterbalance. I'm not a theologian competent to answer that question, but I just I throw that out as a suggestion and say, what a great encouragement to be reminded. Wow, our Lord explicitly tells us it has that too as a great fruit that wasn't even explicitly referred to by St. Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. If I could just conclude with one thought for you, maybe following a little bit up on Dan's question about the requirements for fasting. And I want to encourage you, whenever there is a great event in your life, we always prepare for it, don't we? If there's a big party, you've got to prepare for it. Otherwise, the party's not going to go well. It's a similar thing with our spiritual life. Don't look for the church always to have to lay down law. Because those laws are put out that at least you have to do these things. But if you're living your spiritual life on the at least, I hope you at least get to heaven. Okay? <laughs> we want to live in the heart of the church. And so as these great feast days of the church are coming, don't look around for the law. Go to your spiritual father. Receive your, your instruction. Go to holy confession. And begin to prepare yourself through fasting and prayer. And through that way, we will climb the mountain of God. 
We will ascend to the height that Dr. Kahneback was talking about in the Mass, in the great, the fullness of that feast day. And then, and only then, will we truly feast when we have laid down our life with the Lord and then taken up His life in the resurrection. So, God bless you. I'll see you on Labor Day weekend. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.